Well, in God's perfect timing and in a way that our elders did not plan for, the first Sunday after this law was put in place, we find ourselves in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians coming to a passage of scripture that addresses the very issue that this law speaks to. We're going to do what the king says. Loved ones, this is not a passage about therapy, but this is a passage about conversion. The Christian church is unapologetically about conversion. The title for today's message coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 is, And such were some of you. Like so often at Hope Church, the, the titles just come from the verses themselves. That's, that's right there in verse 10. Such were some of you. You were converted. There was a transformation. There was a change by the power of God. In verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There is a kingdom, and there is a king who rules over that kingdom, and that king determines the rules. That king determines who will and who will not inherit his kingdom. Paul says in verse 9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he warns the church at Corinth not to be deceived. Let me jog your memory a little bit because it's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians in general and chapter 6 in particular. But that word unrighteous is really the key word in unpacking this chapter. It started back in verse 1 where, where Paul used the word unrighteous. In Greek it's atticos to, to describe the judges in the city of Corinth. And Paul was, was, was hearing that the Christians were taking one another to court. And they were going before non-Christian judges. Unrighteous judges. And Paul says, why are you doing that? Why aren't you resolving matters the way that the king told you to resolve matters? Why aren't you following Matthew 18? Why are you going before the unrighteous judge? Then Paul uses the same root word in verse 7. And in verse 8, to tell the church at Corinth that in doing this, in taking your brother and sister to court, you are being unrighteous. You're taking your brother and sister before the Atticos judge, the unrighteous judge, and you are acting, the verbal form, in an Atticao way. You're doing something wrong. You're acting wickedly. You're behaving in an unrighteous way. And then in verse 9, Paul says, don't be deceived because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is concerned about the behavior of the people of Corinth. He's looking at the way that they are living and he's looking at what the word of God says. He's looking at what the king says and says, you are not living like someone who will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, don't be deceived. He's telling the Christians to wake up that they aren't behaving like Christians. 
And just like he did in chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, he gives them a list, a list of sins. Now, this list is not meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be exemplary. he's, He's giving a sample of what unrighteousness is. And it's in this list where we find our first of really, it's a really simple message, just two points today. The first point is this, we have the law of the kingdom. The law of the kingdom. There is a king and he has laid out his law and that law determines who will inherit the kingdom. It's his kingdom and he sets the rules. Notice the wording here though, God did not set this up such that we would become subjects of the kingdom or that we would be only welcomed into the kingdom. Look at the wording there. The idea is what God wants to do is to have people inherit the kingdom. That the kingdom would be our inheritance. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when God created Adam and Eve, male and female. He blessed them and then he told them and gave them dominion over the earth. He gave them kingship. He gave them dominion. Adam and Eve were to rule over the earth like kings and queens. Theologians call them vice regents. But Adam and Eve, rather than doing what the king says and reflecting the king as his image bearer and ruling over the creation, another creature, the serpent, deceived them. They were deceived. And they transferred their inheritance. They gave up their inheritance of the kingdom to Satan. And God has come to make things right, to put Satan in his place and to enable his children to fulfill their original purpose to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. God says, do not be deceived. We can be deceived into thinking that our sin is not serious. And that's what Paul is concerned about here. Many of these sins have already been listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, and it's an exemplary list. But Paul is essentially saying that you can't call yourself a Christian and go on living like this. Jesus has invited us into the kingdom. The king has come to make things right. Adam and Eve abdicated. Adam and Eve gave up their inheritance. Christ came to reclaim it for us. And the first recorded words, the the earliest written gospel, the gospel of Mark, the first words that are ever recorded of Jesus speaking, he speaks of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does he say? How can you enter the kingdom of God? How can you inherit the kingdom of God? He says, repent and believe. The invitation to inherit the kingdom is an invitation to repent. There is one condition, well two really, repent and believe. To repent means to turn. It means to, to change, it's a military term. Soldiers were marching in one direction and then the call comes from the commander, repent. And then the soldiers turn in the opposite direction. And Paul is saying here, 
That you need to repent of your former life, church at Corinth. The Holy Spirit is telling us here at Hope Church that we are called to repent. of That's that's the call of the kingdom, is to repent and to believe in the king. And who needs this message of repentance? Jesus, uh, one chapter later in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, says, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous. There's that word again, righteous, unrighteous. I didn't, I, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We are all called to repent. The message is the same for every human being on earth. If you want to inherit the kingdom, you must repent and believe. That is the message of the kingdom. That is the message of the gospel. And Paul here lays out this list in verse 9 and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He gives a list. The sexually immoral, that that Greek word there is porneia, where we get the word pornography from. Paul has already addressed the issue of sexual immorality in chapters 5, verses 1 to 13. He's going to address it later in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. This is any sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage. Then there's idolaters. This is those who break the first commandment, who put in the place of God any other god. Paul is going to address the issue of idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. Then adulterers. This is the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. This is uh, sexual relations when married to someone you're not married to or someone who was already married. This is the seventh commandment. Jesus said that in Matthew 5 verse 27 to 28... In case you're going through this list and thinking, well, I'm not guilty of idolatry or sexual immorality, Jesus said that anyone who looks at a a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in their heart. Then it says men who practice homosexuality. We'll come to that in a minute. I want you to understand it in the context of this list. Then thieves. This is command number eight in the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal the greedy That's the motivation behind someone who steals, a drunkards, revilers, someone who slanders, someone who tells lies about other people, swindlers, those who cheat and are dishonest. It says none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. This list of sins, again, is not exhaustive but exemplary. This list is the example of who Jesus came to call. He came not to call the healthy but to call the sick. He came to call us, us who are revilers and thieves and greedy and drunkards and adulterers and idolaters and the sexually. He came to call us and he came to call us to do two things, to repent and to believe. Now the one that leaps out at us is the one right at the end of verse 9. It's two Greek words in the, uh, uh, in the, in the, uh, In the Greek, it's one sort of sentence in English summarizing those two words. There's a footnote in the ESV Bible explaining how those two words fit together. 
But it's right there in God's word that in this list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God are men who practice homosexuality. Now I want to share with us this morning three important observations of this statement that we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Firstly, that homosexual practice is part of a list of sins. Secondly, that homosexual practice was considered normal in Roman culture. And thirdly, that homosexual practice is described, describes an action and not an attraction. It's part of a list. It was considered normal in Roman culture and homosexual practice describes not an attraction but an action. It's important for us in the church to understand that this sin is listed with other sins. That this is not some special category of sin. That we should be just as concerned about greed in our life as the temptation towards more sexual attraction with someone from the same sex. We should be just as concerned about slander and reviling or drunkenness. And truth be told, we don't hold that same concern. When Hawley read the passage, I, we all know where our, where our eyes went to. We all know what we zeroed in on. No one was worried about being greedy. And yet we create this special category of sin. Every time that this sin is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned in the context of a list. Look at Romans chapter 1, where Paul lays out most most clearly. Can we get Romans chapter 1 on the screen? This is is a a list of sins that that Paul is outlining. He's trying to make it clear that all of, he's going to come to the conclusion in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he's building the case of how did we get here? And he listed, homosexuality is listed with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hating of God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventing evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness. It's in a list. Uh, for 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it's, again, it's, it's, it's in the middle of a list. Those who are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So firstly, to the Christian... Do we look down on people because this is part of their past or part of their present or if this is part of their internal struggle? Do we think that they are somehow sub-Christian or somehow less human than we are because we struggle with what Jerry Bridges would call more respectable sins? Because our sins are just lumped right in in the same list. And then to the non-Christian, to the person who's hearing this right now, and to the person who listens to the media or to politics and thinks what's being described right now is is hatred. It's it's bigotry. It's 
It's, it's homophobia. Loved ones, what's being described here is not hatred. It's not fear. Christians do not hate people who struggle with same-sex attraction or who engage in homosexual behavior, who would consider themselves gay or lesbian or bisexual. We don't hate those people. We don't, we're not afraid of those people any more than we would be afraid of someone who's committed adultery or told a lie or disobeyed their parents. It's part of a list. You might, you might say, well, why... Why can't we just say love is love? You can't use the word to define a word. Christians, that's an incoherent statement to say that love is love. The Christians, no, the Bible tells us God is love. It's not that love is love. What does that even mean? God is love, God is the king. God sets the boundaries for our ethics, sexual ethics and all ethics, all the ethical implications of all of the lists in 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1. God is love and God's plan for sexuality and marriage, as we're going to see as we go through chapter 6 and into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, marriage and and God's plan for human sexuality points to something bigger than just human relationships. It points ultimately to our relationship with God. God is love. Secondly, the second observation that I want to remind us of is that homosexual practice was considered normal in Roman culture. We're sort of told this idea that human beings and humankind are getting not just, not just progressing technologically and scientifically and advancing and advancing and advancing, but that we're also morally advancing and improving and getting more tolerant and we're becoming better. And the sort of narrative is, is being told that... that People were always against homosexuality and now finally as we become more advanced and and improved, now we're finally tolerating it and accepting it. But loved ones, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, I mean, he, he didn't just insert this for no reason. This was a reality in Roman culture. Many of the Roman emperors were engaged in homosexual practice. Many of the Roman philosophers celebrated these kinds of relationships. So this whole idea of, well, that was then. I mean, Paul was writing this then, but that was 2,000 years. Well, 2,000 years ago was a lot like today. It was accepted then. And so what Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Yes, Paul was Jewish and, and, and Jewish people following the Old Testament had a stricter code of sexual ethics than the broader Roman world, but the Jewish people were in a minority. This was the minority position in a Roman culture that accepted all of these things. And then the third observation I want us to see is that homosexual practice describes an action, not an attraction. Up until maybe the last five or ten years, sort of the repeated claim of those who were advocating for 
the rights of the LGBTQ plus revolution was that people are born this way. That someone's sexual desires, they would call it sexual orientation, is something that is unchosen and that is unchanging. This isn't, now people talk more about a spectrum and fluidity and all of that, but many of us remember just this sort of emphatic, Lady Gaga, I'm born this way. At the end of the day, for Christians, whether or not someone is born with these desires or somehow chose and is responsible for having these desires, really, loved ones, is irrelevant. Attraction and action are two very different things. And what Paul is describing here is action. You can't choose your orientation. You can't choose your attraction, but you can choose what to do with your actions. Someone might say, well, whether I'm born with it or not, I mean, I have these desires. Why, why would I not be true to myself? It seems like the only sin that anyone could commit in our world today, number one, would be to judge someone else, and number two would be to not be true to your own desires, to not be true to yourself. But loved ones, our desires are often confused and very frequently conflicted with one another. Let me, let me give you just a couple of really mundane examples. There are high school students right now who really want to get good grades. There is a strong desire to study hard and to get into that apprenticeship or that college or that university. There are students that have this strong desire for academic success. At the same time, that same student has a desire to spend hours playing Minecraft or scrolling TikTok. Both are desires that are coming from the... Again, I understand that this is mundane. But you need to understand, both of those desires are coming from the... How do you decide whether to listen to this desire to kill time in video games and social media or this desire to hit the books and study hard? I have a desire... To run without feeling pain and winded. I have a desire to be able to do more sit-ups than six. I have a desire to eat healthy and be well. At the same time, I have a desire right now to eat six vanilla dip donuts. You drive right down to Tim Hortons on Argentia, bring it, if you put them right in front of me right now, I would crush half a dozen donuts. Vanilla dip with the sprinkles on top. Both are a desire that, again, I know this is a mundane example, 
But we all have conflicting desires. And loved ones, when it comes to sexuality, every human being on planet Earth has had, since puberty, sexual desires that are repressed or suppressed or not acted upon either out of the person's own self-interest or love for another person. So if we are all willing to acknowledge that there is a category, there is a category of some form of sexual desire inside all of us that we don't all follow through on. So the question is, how do we know which desires to listen to and which desires not to listen to? For the Christian, we do what the king says. The king knows. He, he knows me better than I know myself. He knows every word that I speak before, before I, it comes out of my mouth. He knows every hair on my head and oh, I got more on my face now. But nonetheless, he knows me. And he has told me which desires to listen to and which desires not to listen to. Which desires to act on and which desires not to. The king says, that's the Christian's perspective. What is the world's perspective? We listen to what science says or what politicians say or what pop culture says. Well, go back 50 years. Go back to the 1970s. What was pop culture and science and politics saying about those kinds of desires 50 years ago? Go back 25 years ago. Go back to the mid-1990s when I'm a teenager. What, what was, what was, how was homosexuality portrayed in the media, in politics, even in science? Go back, go back five years ago. Some of the same people who are trumpeting these causes were singing a very different tune even five years ago. Well, maybe I don't listen to politics or culture or I just listen to myself. Well, again, so think about the things you cared about five years ago. Are they the same things you care about? Think about what your desires and goals were ten years ago. They're always changing. You see, the thing about doing what the king says is that the king has been saying the same thing for 2,000 years. You might feel like you're in a sweet spot right now because your desires and acting on your desires is being celebrated and praised by everyone in the culture. But that's right now. Wasn't the case five years ago, 25 years, 50 years ago? What about five years from now or 25 years from now? Or if it, we, you don't know. We know what the king says and we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the king and he sets the boundaries. The boundary is one man and one woman in the context of marriage for one lifetime. And Jesus essentially says, take it or leave it. In Matthew 19, when Jesus was clarifying with the Pharisees divorce law, and Jesus, in fact, doesn't liberalize divorce law. He, he, 
He constricts it. He says, Moses gave you a certificate of divorce. That was sort of like a, like a temporary thing because of the hardness of your heart. He says, no, it's one man, one woman for one lifetime. And then the disciples say, well, is it better not to get married? I mean, if, 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 if marriage is to be that restrictive, is it better not? And, and then Jesus essentially says, take it or live it. Leave it. He talks about eunuchs. He talks about you either get married and follow these ways or you live single. He's the king. He sets the boundaries. In the world, the boundaries are always changing. The target is always moving. But the king speaks with clarity. What, what are, so the, the, the boundaries, the Christian sexual ethics, the boundaries are, are quite clear, quite restrictive. What are the boundaries for sexuality in the world? What are they? Monogamy? That doesn't seem like it's going to last. Consent? What does consent even mean? Like, look at, look at some of the, the, the sexual abuse or sexual uh, assault prevention policies on university campuses. What, I mean, you, it's like 30 pages just to define what, what does consent even mean? Not only are our world's sexual boundaries in flux, but they're, they're nebulous. But loved ones, we're called to do what the king says. Now, I know some of us would be thinking, like, like I think from time to time to think, well, wouldn't it simply be loving and isn't it wrong to have someone give up these sexual desires, these longings? And it's, it goes deeper than just sexuality. It's relationship. It's, it's all of these things. Isn't it wrong to tell someone that they need to give that up in order to follow Jesus? How can we ask people to give this up in order to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, we need to remember that Jesus calls us to give up far more than sexual desire to follow him. There's multiple times where Jesus is just trying to manage crowd reduction, where he's, he's trying to clarify what it means to follow him. One of these cases is in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, if anyone would not come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, if, if you want to follow me, your, your sexual desires and, and your ambitions and your dreams and, and whatever, they, they all have to die. They're all going to take up your cross. And it's going to be painful and it's going to be long and it's going to be hard. Take up your cross. Sam Albury, who is a Christian who for most of his life has struggled with what he would define as same-sex attraction. Others would call it sexual orientation. He says, ever since I have been open about my experience with homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I had more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. 
If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustment to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. The, the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. When, when someone gets baptized, it's, a, it's essentially a funeral. It's a burial. And then there's a resurrection, but it, 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 you come, you, you die. Jesus talks about dying daily, taking up your cross daily. It is a call to die to self. This is what the king says. Sam Albury wrote a helpful little book uh, on this subject called Is God Anti-Gay? And he writes from a very unique perspective just because of his own experience with sexual uh, desire. It answers a number of uh, questions that you may be uh, asking yourself or that friends may be, uh, may be asking you. So I uh, commend uh, that little book uh, to you. The point is, is that our sexuality points to something bigger than just sexuality. That our relationships point to something bigger than relationships. That marriage points to something bigger, to something greater. And that's God's love for us. The second point is this, the, the love of the king. So we have the law of the kingdom and then the love of the king. Verse 11, after giving this list, this again, it's not an exhaustive list, but an example of the kinds of people who were not, not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, and such were some of you. Paul says, you were on the outside looking in. You drunkard, you slanderer, you reviler, you person who practiced homosexuality. You were on the outside looking in, but you were converted. Such were some of you. Something changed that. And what changed that? It was the king. The king who came and proclaimed the kingdom. The king who came and said, repent and believe. The king who said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. I haven't come to heal the healthy. I've come to rescue the sick. The love of the king changes everything. And loved ones, as the story unfolds, this king comes proclaiming the kingdom. And they don't place a gold crown on his head. They place a crown of thorns. And loved ones, they don't put him on a throne. They put him on a cross. And the whole point of him going to the cross was that he would take the blame for our sin, for our disobedience to our parents, for our lying and our cheating and our greed and our sexual immorality and our adultery of the heart. He took the blame on the cross for our sin. And that changes everything. Because when you finally see what Jesus did for you on the cross, then the idea of you taking up your cross no longer seems like a big deal. When you see how much he gave up for you, counting the cost of what you might have to give up to follow him is inconsequential. Think about how Jesus described it in Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all. He sells all. 
all that he has, and he buys that field. No one feels bad for that guy. That guy is not worried about selling everything that he has. Why? Because he's found something greater. Something that will satisfy you more. It's the kingdom. It's the inheritance that was intended for Adam and Eve that has been purchased and brought back by Jesus Christ. He's, and likewise, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold, here it is, all that he had. Every desire, every aspiration, every credential, everything he took pride in, everything he longed for, everything that he thought would give him fulfillment, he got rid of it all so that he could have that which is of great value, the kingdom. You see, God knows our sin and our brokenness. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he loves us and he died for us. And when we understand that, we'll give up anything. So Paul says, if such were some of you, you were changed. And then he says in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus it doesn't come through in our English translations, but in Greek, the word Allah sets up every phrase. The word in the English, it's the word a but. Let me show you what I mean. Let's skip ahead one slide, Kevin. One more, brother. In the Greek, it reads this way, but you were washed. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Such were some of you, but you were sanctified. Such were some of you, but you were justified. He says that we've been washed. Sin leaves a stain. It, it, it leaves a residue. It, it makes us feel dirty. So some sins make us feel dirtier than others, make us feel uh, like we, we can't come before God or before other people. But we've been washed, which is a sign of being cleansed from sin. Again, this is what baptism, baptism symbolizes death. It also symbolizes the cleansing that Paul is describing here. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We've been washed. We've been cleansed of the guilt Secondly, we've been sanctified. God didn't just clean us up and say, go off on your own. No, we've been sanctified, which means that we've been made holy, which means we've been set apart for God's purposes. This is how Paul referred to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The church at Corinth were called saints. They're, every Christian in that church was a saint. Together, says here, together with all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you're a saint. You're a saint. Saint Kathy, Saint Saba, Saint Chris, Saint Ray. We're all saints. Every single one of us. We've been set apart. We belong to God. To be a saint, to be sanctified means to be devoted to God. And then we've been justified. 
It says, but you were justified. And this is, this is really key for us to understand. Remember, the, 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 the key word in this chapter is that word unrighteous and righteous and how those words all fit together. So remember, in verse 9, he had already told them. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, in verse 9, he had already told them that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adikos. But he says, you have been justified. Dikaio. Same root word. We were all unrighteous. Such were some of you. But we have been justified, which means to be made righteous. It's a legal term to declare that someone is innocent. So loved ones, all of us need to remember that one day we're all going to stand before the king and he's going to say, well, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should you inherit the kingdom? And if you come with a list of things, good deeds that you've done and righteous acts to say, oh, this is what I did and I was a good person and I tried here and, and all of this and all of that, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you come before the king and if he asks you, why should you inherit the kingdom? If you say to him, I don't belong here, but the king came for me and he washed me, he sanctified me, and he justified me. I was unrighteous and he declared me righteous. You see, loved ones, the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 helps us understand how we relate to God, that he's, he's washed and sanctified and justified us. And loved ones, that should ultimately change the way, when we understand how we relate to God now, that should change the way that we relate to one another. That neither a Christian nor non-Christian could ever, could ever talk to us about a sin that is not on a list that can be lumped in with sins that we've committed. There, there is not a single sin that anyone could mention to you in your small group or any neighbor or coworker could share with you or any friend in your class could talk to you about that makes that person more unrighteous in need of cleansing and sanctification and justification than you. And so, loved ones, we need to be really careful that we are accurate in preaching the word of God, but that we're also accurate in revealing the heart of God. That we take sin seriously. Don't, don't be deceived, Paul says. But that we handle sinners graciously. Take sin seriously, but handle sinners graciously. 2 Corinthians 5 Verses 14 to 17 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. We don't live for ourselves. It doesn't matter what desires we have inside of us. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for him. We do what the king says, because he died for our sake and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, cleansed, sanctified, justified. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because the king has come and he's called us to repent. Now, what does repentance look like? What does conversion look like? Does, does that mean that the desires that are inside of us all of a sudden go away? Sometimes desires change. 
Sometimes desires stay with us all through our lives. Sometimes I, I get frustrated by these overly triumphalistic testimonies. I used to be this way. Insert Jesus. Now I'm totally different. I understand how that is. That's true. But loved one, it's not true for all of us. And sometimes we trumpet those triumphalistic testimonies. A lot of testimonies are, I used to be this way. And now I'm daily at war with the desires that are inside of me. My heart has been converted. My soul has been converted. But my desires have not been converted. You see, truth be told, our heart has been changed. How we relate to God has been changed. Our allegiance has changed. We used to be rebels against the king. And now we are inheriting the kingdom. We now, because of the conversion, the cleansing, the justification, the sanctification, we now have the desire to do what's right in our new hearts. And we have the power to do what's right in the Holy Spirit. But there is still something inside of us called our flesh that is contrary to the desires of our new creation. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Your fundamental desires, your heart has been changed. But there's still those lingerings, whatever sin it might be, are still there. So a more accurate testimony is, I used to be like this and now I'm at war every day, but it's worth it. Now I'm taking up my cross daily but I found the pearl of great price. I found the treasure in the field. Loved ones, when we think about conversion, the question is not fundamentally, can my desires be changed? The question is, am I willing to obey the king? We need to think about what this means for us as a church. Are we the kind of church where someone could come in from the outside living in one of the sins, particularly the sin mentioned here, homosexual practice, and would they feel comfortable talking about that with members of this church? Could, could a Christian young person or a Christian adult, a Christian senior citizen who's been fighting the battle in darkness all of this time, what have they told you today that this was a daily struggle for them? How would you respond. Tim Keller talks about the difference between the waiting room for a job interview and the waiting room at the doctor's office. At the job interview, right, like everyone's well-dressed and they're trying, to, they're trying to put on their best face and they're trying to compare, I hope I'm better than you and I, I think I'll do, I think my resume might be stronger and we're, we're there to present our best. We're, we're there to compare ourselves to others and try to, but the atmosphere at the doctor's office is totally different, right? People aren't dressed up, they're wearing their pajama bottoms and, and, and everyone knows we're here because there's something wrong. Loved ones, we're in the waiting room of the doctor's office. We're all here because there's something wrong. We're not here with our resume and our quick answers to whatever questions might come our way to show how competent or, or, or well put together we are. 
Are we the kind of church family where we could receive confession, not just of respectable sins, but of disrespectable sins? And are we the kind of Christian that is willing to confess not just respectable sins, but disrespectable sins? What keeps us from sharing them? What keeps other people from sharing them with you? Loved ones, we need to remember that such were some of you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this was not an easy message to give. I know it's not an easy message uh, to receive for those who are here present and those who are online. Father, I just I want to pray what I prayed from the outset. I pray that you as the king would speak and that your word would speak for itself and that we would delight in the kingdom as the treasure in the field, as the pearl of great price and that we would look at the cost, the price that you paid to bring us into the kingdom and that we would look at whatever cost it would cost us to follow you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength, give us the faith, Lord, to follow your law and to live lives that are rooted in your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.